All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Helper. How do you feel, Katie? Meh, I've felt better. Yeah, you were sick. I, I have been sick. I am sick. I will be sick. Are you feeling better now, though? A little. A little. It's been a while. But thank you for asking. And you? Yeah. I feel, uh, I, I actually, I'm, I'm quite well, actually. Oh, I had good. a really good weekend. I'm really Great. happy. I spent a lot of time with my family. And, uh, and so now let's, uh, let's wreck it. Let's, yeah. let's, 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 let's talk let's about politics and really depressing yeah. stuff. And, but we have a great show. We're going to talk to uh, Crystal Ball and Sagar Anjedi, right? Authors uh, of Populous The Populous Guide, Guide to 2020. A New Left and a New Right are Rising. Right. And their because show they are the hosts of... Rising on the hill, on right? The hill. So Which that's we, yeah. uh, it's a great discussion. Both been on full disclosure. Yeah, the friends of show FOS. Yeah, FOS. Yeah. Or FSOS. I think FOS is better. FOS. Yeah. Great discussion, and yeah. we got a whole bunch of stuff to get to with the campaign. So let's get to it. Let's get to it. And uh, we're going to go through all kinds of stuff about the campaign, when, and there was lots and lots of craziness oh my God, as usual. So much. So we should start with uh, the four food groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, Republicans suck. Democrats suck. Uh, isn't that weird? Isn't that uh, terrible? Terrible. For Democrats suck this week. It's not really Democrats. It's just. It's a thing that's popping up that we started to see in 2016, and now it's here again. The, the, the Washington Post ran a, an op-ed, and the headline is, it's time to give elites a bigger say in the primary. And this, this happened in 2016 when Trump won the primaries on the Republican side. You started to see these right. uh, too much democracy articles. Mm-hmm. Like, is there, is there such a thing as too much democracy? Uh, and now we're getting this because Bernie's doing well. So basically, the, what the piece says is that it wants us to do a ranked choice system, right? Uh, because what it's saying is, uh, and it's, here, here's the quote, it says, what this system is not great at is choosing among the many candidates uh, who clear the bar for basically for nomination, uh, or bringing their different ideological factions together, or reconciling competing priorities. And what they're basically saying here is, right now we have a situation where there are a whole bunch of, like quote unquote, centrist candidates, mm-hmm. and right. they just haven't done a good job of consolidating uh, right. all of that, all those factions together to to beat back basically Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's that's the subtext of this whole thing. Yeah. I hate to make this show about that all the time. But basically all this is saying is that this system is producing a bad result uh, because we're getting people voting uh, for this person when we want them to vote for, for another person. Right, when we when don't we, like him. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, it's funny because I actually, I think ranked a lot of people who are progressive like ranked choice voting. Mm-hmm. I imagine that the person who wrote this doesn't really care about ranked choice voting. They just care about finding... A, something that will make Sanders not do well. Right. Um, Chance the Rapper likes ranked choice voting, by the way. No, Shout I mean, I, I, like, I like no, ranked I choice voting. I, mean, I like it in a parliamentary system, though, yeah. because that's the whole, the whole idea is to get a proportional representation right. in government. This is not what you'd be doing. The, the, the whole idea here is that what they, and, and here's the way they put it, the, the point is to, is to build a way for party elites to understand what their base is thinking and to allow them uh, to bargain uh, so that these different preferences and priorities can be balanced, right? And I almost yeah. the elites know what the what the voters are thinking. They can tell by who they're voting for. Yeah, they just don't want to support that this, person. That's why they're writing this piece. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny. I clicked on the article, and of course, it was like paywalled, which is uh, ironic. Yeah. Right. But uh, no, this is. I mean, I actually appreciate it. I appreciate how much they're just wearing their hearts on their sleeves or putting their cards on the table. They're just like. We need more concentration of power. Right. So this, this all started in, in 2016. The Brookings Institute did a piece. Um, They're liberal. The liberal think tank. Yeah, kind of. 
Right. Well, they, they characterize themselves that way. Characterize right? themselves yeah. that way. But everybody was was doing this back then. And their, their article was, is too much democracy responsible for the rise of right. Trump? And then later on in November, we had the Wall Street Journal doing an amazing editorial, which, which said it's, uh, it was entitled, It's Time to Bring Back the Smoke-Filled Room. So they're, they're being open about this. They want to go back to the days when people decide, when there's a group of deciders right. instead of voters. They should have a poll tax again. <laughs> you think? Maybe. I mean, yeah. I, these people should, should suggest that. And then there's that, that Atlantic headline. Yeah, is, is too much democracy is bad for democracy. I mean, you know, there was a ton of this. Andrew Sullivan did a piece, which right. was actually kind of interesting. But he, he wrote one back then. It was huge. But um, it's not that weird that, like, the Wall Street Journal says this or Andrew Sullivan. But it, it is kind of weird, I think, that the Brookings Institute says it. I mean, yeah. it's not weird, but it is weird. Again, they're just wearing it on their sleeves. Whenever you get a result when... It's a populist movement right. that's going to defy the wishes of a bunch of institutionally, you know, chosen people. Uh, you're going to get this kind of a thing, and yeah. people are going to see the downside to democ to do to democracy, right. and they're going to make all kinds of arguments like, "Oh, think about how inefficient it would be if we had direct democracy for everything." Right. I mean, you're going to start to see a lot of those arguments. But imagine so. thinking like the reason that Trump rose to power is because we have too much democracy. Right. Well, I mean, I can see how you can make that argument. But Basically, the, the party, you know, there are controls that traditionally existed to make sure that, you know, the, the choice of the party would be somebody right. who was acceptable to everybody. So you had, the, you know, the media was one barrier, or the party itself was another barrier, right? You needed to have donors, all those people needed to agree. Right. And, you know, Trump kind of smashed that whole model. And yes. what they're saying is we need to have a model, basically. More decor right. I mean, more decorum also. And like... The real honest takeaway, of course, is that like their how much democracy has failed or how much institutions have right. failed and that there isn't, you know, if there were actual more ca lowercase d democracy, so people wouldn't be turning to Trump. Yeah. And, and all they're really saying is that we know better than voters. Right. Vo voters ultimately are ignorant. They make bad choices. So we need to, we right. need to have some kind of safeguard There's, in right. there. So. There's no introspection whatsoever. Like they don't care about what's behind it. Because right. they just want to keep their consulting jobs and they want to like hold on to their ideology and the idea that the status quo was okay. And they don't realize that people are, are voting this way precisely because they hate people all like those, this. those guardians and those yeah. self-appointed, you know. Right, because uh, they hate know, people who say that vanguards. elites need more power. Right, exactly. So it's, it's ironic. We're going to start to see more of this, though, as Bernie does better. So, so what do we have for Republican suck? Uh, for Republican suck, we have one of my favorites, um, Jennifer Rubin who has a blog, a column at the Washington Post called Right Turn, in case you were um, curious about her orientation. She's a neocon. She's hates, she used to say terrible things about Obama. Anyway, so she, about Bernie, of course, said, oh, let's pick the socialist who had a heart attack and won't release his med records and turns up his nose at millions to fund the campaign. Brilliant, just brilliant. So I love watching, I, I tweeted like I love watching her lose her racist neocon mind. And it is true. Jennifer Rubin has about like a weekly column on Sanders. She once wrote like, is he past his sell-by date? And I don't mean to be something, but. Well, she's as monomaniacally, monomaniacally against Sanders as you are for him. Though, sure. Right? But I admit it. Right. Okay. And I don't have a Washington Post column, although That's I true. should. Right. Because I'm much more honest than she is. Right. She's really, uh. Tough to read. Yeah, she's tough to read. And also, can I say it's like this? She writes with a fork. Yeah, I don't know why it's not embarrassing to the resistance to have people like her in it. 
Like oh. Media Matters used to have all these examples of terrible things that she would say. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Andrew Sullivan said she was Islamophobic. Right. Right. Well, you know, I mean, there's been a change in the orientation. I mean, we've got Bill Crystal and David yeah. Frum and all those right. folks. Those are now the kind of who's you know, the worst. You know, they're all kind of the same. Uh, but this, you know, this thing with the health records, I, it's not going to go away. Right. By the way, I mean, and, and look, to be fair, Sanders did have a heart attack. He's an old guy who had a heart attack. Yeah. So this, this question is not going to go away. And you know, I think the way that the, the Sanders campaign uh, characterizing this as a smear campaign and everything, I, I don't know that that's right. Well, he released his re- the smear part is that they're presenting it like he's being dishonest now. Right. Like. Yeah, there were arguments about the way he unrolled the news last time, mm-hmm. but they keep changing the goalposts. So he released his records, and they're, they're like, oh, no, but we want more. We want more um, information. Sure. And they, they are talking about it as if it's this standard that he's violating. Right. But that's just not the case. Right. There's no standard, but that doesn't mean the question's illegitimate either. So, and, you know, he's, no, he's going to keep putting that question. Yeah, but it's the hypocrisy of people who are asking it. And also, like, again... Joe Biden bled from his eye on national television. And he's clearly insane. And he's clearly insane. And he had brain surgery. Right. And like, why aren't people asking for more details from him? Yeah. It just, I mean. They should I, have minute to minute brain scans of Joe Biden. In fact, that should be like be a amazing. live graphic yeah. on CNN yeah, while, while he, during the debates. Yes. You know, you could see the little, little yeah, where, where lights, lights going up. On. Yeah. Yeah. That That'd would be, be great. Amazing. His yeah. memory center. He's thinking about grapes corn now. Pop. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Is there a corn pop? place in his brain what does she mean and turns up his nose at millions to fund a campaign i mean, I think what she's saying is that he he's unilaterally disarming in the fu- in the fight against trump in other words because he's not going to accept uh funding from all the usual oh, sources right. i'm guessing she has no I- well she's like the she might as well she i'm sure also bemoans the fact that elites don't have more power she doesn't understand why that's actually something that's not just morally valuable but strategic on sanders part right Right. That gets him votes. Yeah. That position. Yeah, and what this came up in 2016 too—the the, the whole funding idea that we can't unilaterally disarm. We have right. to, we, you know, if they're doing it, we have to do right. it. Yeah. But sh- is wrong. We're gonna. I think we're gonna test that hypothesis right. this year. But, well, depends. If you know Bloomberg becomes the nominee, then we're gonna really not test it. But it's interesting. All right. For so. for isn't that weird? Um, this is like a fit, one of my favorite genres of news stories, which is the. Something weird um, turns up 50 years later, yeah. or yeah. So a, a million years ago, when I was in Russia, I did a story about somebody who mailed a letter actually from Finland to to Russia uh, during the Tsarist years, and it arrived in the 90s. Uh, and so this is like a different story. Uh, class ring in Maine, uh, class ring lost in Maine, turns up 50 years later in Finland, and Finland's it was buried. At the center. It was buried under eight inches of dirt in a park in Finland. Uh, so a, a couple that lost the class ring in Maine uh, 50 years ago, that ring has just turned up uh, inscribed and it was sent back to the woman uh, in Maine uh, this week, which is, I just love that these kinds of stories. I lost my great grandmother's engagement ring or wedding ring. Did you? I'm so upset about it. Yeah. Every is now and then Finland? it haunts me. I don't know where it is. If you guys, if you're watching this, I think I lost it at a restaurant on the Upper East Side. It was awful because I met two women there at the po- at the time I was like involved in the Jewish Palestinian dialogue group, mm-hmm. and I met two women to talk about it there, and one of them was like really sympathetic to killing Gazans, uh-huh. and I remember being like, really, I have to sit here, and as if that's not bad enough, then I lost my great grandmother's wedding ring. Where do you think it is now? I don't know. Someone... You think it's on a different continent? Nah. 
I think mm. it's somewhere here. Sorry, I didn't mean to to, to hog the. Uh, no, that's isn't right. that weird that's story. Right. I just I, I love these stories. You, they often involve a, a pet. These stories, like somebody oh. loses a pet and it turns up like in another continent. Oh wow! You know, like oh. there's a woman lost a cat in Wisconsin once and it showed up in, in France. Finland. Not Finland. France. Oh, this is real. I this thought real. you were making it just like grabbing out of no, thin the, air. The, oh wow! The, the, the cat ran away in Wisconsin and they got a call. Like the cat somehow ended up in a in a, a flatbed truck. And went all the way to France, and they found it, and they called her. You know. Wow. So these stories happen all the time. Is the cat like a francophile? I I don't know why they. I don't think the cat intentionally chose to go to France, but it just happened. Wow! Wow! Way to deny the cat agency, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fun. What do we have for? Isn't that terrible? Oh my God! For isn't that terrible? uh, I found a story about a case of uh, dolphinicide, um, dolphin murder. So. there have been three dolphin murders now. And guess where, of course? Where does terrible stuff happen always? Florida? Florida, yeah. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is offering $20,000 for information on a dolphin killer or killers after two animals were found dead within a week. Biologists with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission found a dolphin that appeared to have been shot in the face Jesus. off Naples late last week. Shortly before, experts with the Emerald Coast Wildlife Refuge found a dolphin on the Pensacola shoreline with a bullet hole in its left side, reports the Miami Herald. This follows the discovery last summer of a dolphin impaled near its right eye along Upper Captive Island, Captiva Island, west of Fort Myers. It was in begging posture, as was the dolphin found off Naples. So the dolphin was begging for it what life when somebody mean? impaled that it? What does that mean? That is so awful. What's begging posture? So I don't we, even want to know what that we, is. We have a dolphin serial killer? Yeah. I want that person to get the death penalty. <laughs> and I don't even believe in the death penalty. Well, you'll make an exception for I this. want that person to be killed by sharks. <laughs> That's how I can re- reconcile my hatred of sharks, which people find problematic, because I've said in the past that I want them to be extinct. But right. I will change my position mm-hmm. if we can use them to kill dolphin killers. Right. You just want to throw this person over, like douse the person in pig blood and throw them overboard. And, like, Without a, killing a pig. It has to be a naturally died pig right. that naturally died. Okay. Yeah. This is terrible. I mean, who, somebody's out there literally yeah. for enjoyment shooting dolphins in the face. That's about it's as far so as It's so awful. Like, that's like the worst person you can possibly and imagine. And dolphins are so nice. They are. I bet that if we brought the guy, if we brought him in and, and told the dolphins, like, that's the one who killed your family. Right. They wouldn't do anything. They would. No, they would be like... Dolphins are strong. They could nub the guy to no, death. No, but yeah. they wouldn't want to because they're peace-loving animals. Yeah, I don't know. And that's when we would invite the sharks teeth. in. They're, they're carnivores. I know, but I feel like they're the people whose, whose relatives are killed and they don't want to... I'm not wanna... saying they deserve to get shot in the face. Yeah, but come on. They also... They, you know, that story about a guy swimming and dolphins surrounded him like in a circle... Because they want to protect them from sharks. No, that's true. They're great animals. Nobody, nobody should be running around impaling dolphins in the eye. That's, I know that's they should be impaled, or they should just. They, you're, I would like for the dolphin to impale them back. I just think they're too peace loving, but maybe not. Right. I told you I went swimming with them, so I'm extra sensitive. They pushed. Did I tell you I was like a little? I was 11, I think, in Mexico, and they pushed their noses into the arches of my foot. Like that's how they do it. There's one dolphin behind each foot, and they go like that, and you kind of like come up like. Some wow. winged victory statue. That is a terrible, that is a legitimately terrible news story. Uh, so what do we have this week? We, we, I guess we, we should tell people. The merch. Yeah, first of all, where, where, where they can buy merch. So we got merch. Look, we got these beautiful cups. Um, we got T-shirts and totes. 
And the tote bag has an inner pocket, which is really cool. Is it, really does it come in handy already? Yeah, definitely. And where can they find this? Well, so that's an interesting story. People have been saying that they don't know how to find them. So let's walk them through it. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of options. One is you go to teespring.com. That's T-E-E spring.com slash stores slash useful hyphen idiots. Or if you go to our YouTube video, is it in it? So you go to our YouTube video and in the description, there will be a link mm -hmm. and you click on that link. I see. And this is right before or after you rate and review us, give us a positive re review. Right. Um, you give... Positive America, a negative review. Right. Or just... Just cast them out of your mind yeah, completely. Just cast, yeah, yeah, yeah. Write their name down on a piece of paper and then Throw it in a roaring over. fire. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's great. makes for great gifts. You said that so convincingly. Uh, did I not sound convincing? No, no, you're convincing. Okay, so that, that, that's how you can buy merch. All right. Um, the, our sports discussions have been really popular. I think people yeah. really look forward to your insights yeah. uh, in sports. So uh, we have a topic that I think everybody wants to know your take on which is where is Tom Brady going to sign? I mean... On the dotted line. Yeah. on the. <laughs> eventually, probably, that is where he will sign. Yeah. yeah. Physically on a piece of paper. If I know him to be the traditionalist... Do you have is. an in with Tom Brady? I don't. Are you close to Alex Guerrero and that whole crew? Is that is that your route to, to, to Brady through the on the fitness side or what? It's more his anti-gun violence work. Tom Brady does anti-gun violence work? The Brady... That's a different Brady. That's James Brady, Dream the one who Brady. got in dolphin-like fashion, got shot in oh the face. Oh my God, he got dolphined. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he did. No relation. No relation. Okay. No. The way I know Tom Brady is the way everyone knows him. Well, what's what do you think the criteria is going to? Is he going to choose? What's he going to value more? Money, uh, winability, weapons. What's the most important thing for him? And, and, and well, not weapons, because the gun thing. Because he's, of the gun thing. So he wants violence. to go somewhere he doesn't have weapons. So he why doesn't he just stay in New England then? Well, New England's cold. Right. And he's been there for how long now? 20 years. Yeah. yeah. So he's tired of it. And he doesn't like the mass holes. He doesn't like the mass holes. Yeah. Right. Okay. So where is he going to go? What's, what, what, if, you had to, if you had to rank, what's, what's your leaderboard for, the, for Brady destinations? Give me a, a choice. Like, give me a quadrant of the United States. Let's, let's throw some out there. If you had to choose between Tennessee, uh, Vegas, uh, L.A., Chargers, obviously, not, uh, not Rams. Right. Uh, Tennessee. Where do you think among, among those? Tennessee. Tennessee yeah. is where he's going to stay? Yeah. All right. He's going to stay. No, it's where he's going to go. Oh, yeah. And he's, is he going to sign before or after the start of free agency? Free agency is such a, I mean, I don't even know how to define it. <laughs> like, how would you define free agency? I mean, isn't that a whole philosophical debate, whether we have it? Whether we as human beings have agency in the universe? Free agency, yeah. It's a big, you know, all the philosophers <laughs> that, have that is what we're it. talking yeah. about, yeah. Whether, so, does mankind have, yeah. do, do human beings have free will? Right, that's what I'm saying. That's like, what we discuss every at the beginning of every March in the new yeah. league year. Yeah. So I think that honestly, you I don't I reject the premise because we always have free will. So Tom Brady already has free agency right now. Huh. So, so he's already a free agent. Yeah. As as a human being yeah. making his way through the universe. Yeah. He's showing his agency as a person already. Yeah, exactly. Right. So he he doesn't think his his history is preordained. No, he's, he's not a Calvinist. Choices, even now. Yeah, even he's making choices. Yeah. Even before the technical start of free agency, he's already making those When those is that choices. technical start? In the beginning of March. Dan, yeah. when is the, what's, the, what's the date? Yeah, well, tell me more about him. Make sure I'm thinking of the right one. So he's the quarterback from the Patriots. Right. Uh, he's a uh, six-time Super Bowl champion, been to nine Super Bowls. He's handsome. Yeah. Uh, he has a supermodel wife. Uh, he's an icon in, in Massachusetts, but... 
for the first time, he's it's it's possible that he's not coming back to the Patriots. So there's lots and lots. Why of, wouldn't he come back? Uh, for a lot of reasons, there's a relationship issue between him and the coach. Right. Uh, he's been there for a million years. Yeah. I'm not sure whether they want to invest in an old person. Yeah, he needs know, a change of scenery. He needs a change of scenery. The tension between him and the coach is too much. Coach Belichick. Coach Belichick, who I remember him from something else. Wasn't he involved in some... some Spygate, yeah. Was Inflategate or something? That was Brady. Oh, it was Brady. Yeah. yeah. You see, I was right. Yeah. I knew it's familiar. Deflategate, not Deflategate, Inflategate. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um all right, so we, we, you're bidding on Tennessee. Yeah, I think the the Smoky Mountains, the music. I'm gonna just, bet on I'm gonna bet on LA. So uh, we're they do all have the nice record. weather. Yeah. Chargers, right? But according to Katie, free, we all have yeah. free agency yeah, all the there, time. Yeah. So oh. it's already free agency, and that's a good point. All right, so what what else do we have? We have something from. Uh, so you know, Bloomberg is entering the race, and uh, our good friend uh, James Adoman, who will come must come on the show. He's been on the Katie Halper show, and he really wants to come on this show, actually. I don't want to overrate him. He's one of the funniest uh, impersonators. Right. And what makes him so good is that he's not just really good at the mimicry, but he's like so gets the political and cultural references. Right. And he knows a lot about politics. And he was actually a theater econ double major in college. Um, So he made this uh, Bloomberg ad. I'm Michael Bloomberg, and I'm running for president because I can. Why? Because I have $50 billion. So running for president to me is almost like going out and buying some ice cream. Oh, what do you know? Ice cream. That's the kind of thing that people who don't pay much attention to politics think is kind of cool when the guy who invented the stop and frisk policy in New York City is trying to buy an election. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and I'm buying this ad spot in the middle of this other ad just to let you know the scale at which I am able to buy this election. It actually confuses you. It ruins the last ad to have this ad bought in the middle of the former ad that still got. I'm Michael Bloomberg. Gratuitously, I'm adding an ad within the ad to the other ad. Why? To show you that I can throw money around like it's on fire. I'm Michael Bloomberg, and this is an ad within an ad that's within an ad, and I think that might even be within another ad. I don't even, I can't even keep count. We are four levels down. I'm buying ad space inside of my own ad space. Why? Because I want you to wake up thinking Michael Bloomberg. Hey, Mike, I'll take over from here. That's Mike Bloomberg, and I'm Mike Bloomberg, and resistance is futile. (laughs) I'm Michael Bloomberg, and I'm buying this election. I want you to start your day, even with the television off, knowing that you're probably incidentally going to hear a Michael Bloomberg ad sometime during the day. I'm Michael Bloomberg. Fuck you. (laughs) Fuck all of you. Buying the election, and we're buying ad time, even on our own ads. I'm Mike Bloomberg, and this is how the nightmare begins. I'm Michael Bloomberg. You're back at the original ad. If you're thinking, I don't support Michael Bloomberg, that's what everybody's thinking. But let me tell you something. Nobody supports Michael Bloomberg. And yet all these people are working on my commercials. Why? Because I have that much money to throw at them. You might think I will make a terrible president and that someday there's going to be robot dog police and stop and frisk across this fucking country and drone strikes domestically to anybody who pipes up the way Occupy Wall Street did. And you know what? You're right. And that's why I'm running for president, because there's no way to stop me. Yummy. I'm Michael Bloomberg, and I approve this mess. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's from James Doman, who has a great podcast called The Underculture. It's great. Which it's is terrifying. The, it's yeah, true. Yeah. 
He yeah. is really so scary, Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, what he's doing is uh, un- unprecedented and horrible. And uh, and you know, it, he's actually, I think, just genuinely a bad person. Yeah, uh, Bloomberg. Like, yeah, you he's know, supposed to be really underneath vile his hideous political boss. exterior. Right. The, like underneath the bad exterior, there, there's there's a worse exterior. Right, like, that a worse we can't even thing see, that, that we, we haven't even see. seen yet, yeah. Right? Well, you know, the question is, how did we get Bloomberg, right? Where did he come from? And uh, this answer that we have from Pod Save America, a friend of the show, Pod Save America host, John Favreau, is kind of like the podcast equivalent of the elites need to have more power, right. I think. So let's, let's hear what he has to say about this. Look, I, I think the other thing that's tough here is, there's a lot of folks on on the left who spent a lot of this campaign telling us that Pete Buttigieg is uh, is some centrist chill and not a good enough Democrat, and Joe Biden is not a good enough Democrat, and Amy Klobuchar is not a good enough Democrat, and it's like now we have someone in Mike Bloomberg who really isn't a good enough Democrat, who really is a moderate Republican, and because a lot of times they spent this entire campaign telling us that good mainstream Democrats like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and Joe Biden aren't good enough for us, it's going to be harder for a lot of people to believe that that's true about Mike Bloomberg when it is true about Mike Bloomberg. This is the fable we will tell our children. A boy who cried centrist. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot to unpack there. This is the fable we're going to tell our children. It's a boring fucking fable. Yeah, and this is from Ben Dixon who tweeted this, in which I guess this John... Pod Save America blames the rise of Bloomberg on leftists being mean to centrists as opposed to Bloomberg buying democracy, media manufacturing consent, party assisting him instead of blocking him. Brilliance. Yeah. And um, that last point is, is really, really true, by the way. Like, you know, the party bent the rules to let it, to, to allow Bloomberg to buy, their, buy his way into the debates. Yeah. He's not even on the ballot in Nevada. Is he not really? Interesting. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Owen Higgins had a good tweet about this also saying, like, um, you know, if he, if I were a supporter of of Tulsi or not to, of of Castro or Harris or or Booker or anyone who didn't make it into the debates, I'd be furious about. Yeah, you should Bloomberg. be because they told all those people we're not going to bend the rules for yeah. anybody, and then they did bend the rules for him. And he, look, this guy is not a Democrat in any. I mean, there's nothing about him that's no. You know, and and I think it's actually extreme. This is like voter shaming what John Favreau is doing, and it's like the elite argument. And it's th- these people are so out of touch. That they don't even realize how out of touch they come off. Right. And it's like, no, that's not how politics works. It's not like, oh, we've wasted our wad. We've blown our wad on arguing that Pete Buttigieg is centrist. And now there's a real centrist Republican. And now we've wasted that argument. That's just not how it works. Yeah, it's not like there's not like a finite number of people that you can say are terrible. They could all be terrible. Yeah, and also like you could argue that that shifts. We've shifted the Overton window to the left. By criticizing Buttigieg, and that makes Bloomberg that much less electable. I'm trying to go through my whole life without ever actually using the phrase the Overton window. window. Yeah. Pretty good, though. Yeah. Have you never? Is it good? You just did it. I know I just did it, but does that count? Yeah, I think so. Okay. All you right. Well, have then said I just that ruined phrase. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think that's so ridiculous. It is. It is ridiculous. And it's. That's like saying if. Imagine if he's. It's a false, faulty syllogism, basically. Yes. Right, yeah. So it's, uh, it's but, terrible. But Matt, that's the fable we will tell our children. It's the, the fable boy I would, who cried yeah, centrist. Yeah, 20 years from now, that's what we're going to be. You're, you're going to be Why did Michael Bloomberg win president, the presidency? Well, well you let see, me there tell are these you. leftists who uh, were critical of Pete Buttigieg. Because he was didn't stand for anything in, in Amy right. Klobuchar because she told the same joke over and over again. Right, yeah. and uh, opposed Medicare for all, and Biden because he bleeds from his eye right. and, and was, uh, created uh, an Suffering a severe degenerative neurological right. disease on, on live television for a year. Yeah, and <laughs> um, gave his son a nice job 
on, on Amtrak. Right. Help them. Yeah. Help them. Help yeah. them. Yeah. That to me is the biggest corruption. Well, my favorite thing about that is when the, the, the letter, uh, right. we, we talked about the, this. Hunter right? Biden he, got, he rides the trains. He got nominated to the, he's, he was a member of the board of Amtrak, right? Yeah. And his qualification and the recommendation was, letter was from Tom Carper to the Amtrak board. Basically says Hunter, Hunter, Hunter Biden has spent a lot of time on Amtrak trains. Yeah. That was in the recommendation, which was one of the all-time that's like the all-time nepotism. It's that's yeah. worse than nepotism, actually. But yeah, yeah, that's infantilizing with. too. Yeah. So because we complained about all that, because people complained about all that, we ended up with Michael Bloomberg. It's our fault that Michael Bloomberg has decided to basically try right. to buy an election. So yeah, uh, what victim blaming? Yeah, who they they should really be upset with is is the Democratic Party right. for yeah. opening their arms to this guy. Yeah. I and mean, I think that that's that's the that's, that's the worst. That's so part. obvious. But these people don't know how to blame powerful elites. Those people are their heroes, right. so they have to blame the riffraff right. and the actual resistance, which they like to claim to be part of. Right. The resistance to them is just like boycotting Nordstrom's because they carry Ivanka Trump's line. <laughs> That's true. Jen Palmieri very, recommended that. Very, very heavy politics right there. No, she said yeah. that don't think that the anger with Trump is about Fight for 15. It's about... Um, Boycotting Nordstrom's. She said that uh, to Chuck Todd. Very, I love very, Chuck I mean, Todd. Look, that's the things like that can change the entire world. You never know. Yeah, game know. changers. So, yeah, game changers. So I have an idea. Yeah. I think as a ritualistic thing that we can all experience together. I think every time Amy Klobuchar tells her Snow Woman joke on television, I think we have to just ceremonially listen to it together. Oh God. Listen to the whole thing. And, make, and get, get our audience members to also listen to it. Okay. So this is a shared experience. Right. This is a, in public speaking, they tell you at the beginning of a speech to invoke a shared experience with the audience. Okay. So let's share this experience of okay. listening to this Got joke it. again. Okay, great. All right, so she did it at her town hall. And uh, be aggressive, of course. Uh, but I also think you've got to point out how absurd he absurd. is at times, right? Absurd. You do, absurd. and you have to, you have to be nimble. You have to be nimble, nimble? in the moment uh, to be able to do that. So uh, when I announced my candidacy in the middle of that blizzard and he made fun of me for talking about climate change in a blizzard um, and called me snow woman, which I kind of liked, actually, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, 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 sent out a tweet and said, the science is on my side, Donald Trump, when it comes to climate change. And, and I'd I like to see how your hair would fare in a blizzard. <laughs> or, um, I like the way she says you have to be nimble Yeah. as if repeating the same. I mean, there's nothing wrong with repeating the same joke again and again and again. She's nimbly repeating the same yeah. joke over What's and over again. What's nimble about it? So what, what do you, where's your pain level with listening to this joke right now on a scale of one to ten? It's not that bad because. I'm not going to four right now. Yeah. With yeah. ten being the most painful? Yeah. 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 I'd say it's, um, it's at a, yeah, it's a four. And like Warren saying like. I think you just called me a liar. That's like an eight. That's an eight? Yeah. Do you think we can get our audience members up to an eight or nine with this joke? Do you think we'll have time to do that? I don't know. You know what it reminds me of when you said it has to be a, what is it, a shared a experience? A shared experience, yeah. Um, and it's like a painful experience. Mm -hmm. It's like, what's the Chris Hedges book, War is a Force That Brings Us Together? Right, yes. It's yeah. like this joke is a force. This is a joke that is a force that's going to bring us all together. Yeah. We're going to share in the, in the Similarly agony awful. of the, right, exactly, yeah. this experience. So. Yeah. Okay, so we have stone moments for this week. We have a whole bunch oh of them that God, are crazy. Yeah. So um, here's an interesting moment that uh, Jack Al Allison found, co-host of the Struggle Session podcast uh, of, uh, well, Bloomberg. I'll tell you where I'm going. Iowa. 
explain that to people who are just listening so okay so it's 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 basically mike dukak uh, oh it's it's mike bloomberg doing mary poppins yeah and he's on a string and he's floating around an umbrella that has nypd and mets logos on it yeah. and he's saying that he's gonna you know let, let's see if we can get the country to behave better and then he kind of flies across the stage peter pan style and then he flies across the stage with an umbrella and a briefcase that says mp on it at the end i I find <laughs> myself wanting to drop him in a tank full of Komodo dragons at the end. You know, yeah. like he, it's just so horrible. It's really weird, though, because like the curtain descends over him in a kind of ominous way. That is a genuinely horrifying clip. If he actually becomes president, I think that that I'm emotionally scarred already having yeah. watched that. So yeah, what's know. your pain level on that? That's more like a seven already. Oh, seven, okay. Yeah, because I can already see him floating to power. Can we hear the very beginning again? I just want to hear what he says. I'll tell you where I'm going. (laughs) First, Iowa. Then New Hampshire. It's so waiting for Guffman, by the way. Totally. I'll tell you where I'm going. Yeah, the going. delivery is amazing. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually don't recommend that anyone get high and watch that. I think that right. would not be a happy yeah. experience. Yeah. So uh, what else we have? We got, we got right. uh, Biden. We got a Biden moment, yeah. But the obligatory. Of course, yeah. Biden moment. We're going to miss him when he's not in the race I know. Anymore. Don't even mention it. I don't want to think. We're not there yet, so. Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. Joe Biden. Okay, so that's a Backstreet Boys song. I don't know if you know. It's like, everybody, yeah. Rock your body, yeah. Everybody, Backstreet's back. All right. I almost admire it. It's almost like a, it's like almost a, a cult reminds me of a cult movie or something. Right. Like it's such a weird throwback. It's Aum Shinriko, but with uh, with Biden as the cult leader. Yeah, it's but it's like a weird '90s song. I mean, '90s song to refer to. I'm not sure why. Is it from the aughts or the '90s? My favorite is the look on his face where he's just like, who, "Where no am I? And who who are these on? people? Well, this How is did kind I get of, here?" Yeah, and he's like, "They're good." It's kind of on brand though, because remember he mentioned a movie from like the '50s. Yeah. So they're mentioning a song from the 90s. It's just like a weird, they're cultural. Cultural cross purposes. Yeah, they're cultural cross purposes. And neither is like, they're not very present to the to the moment right now. I just don't get the enthusiasm. Like, and where's he back from? I could see voting for Joe Biden. Like I, I could actually imagine myself making that decision. I mean, I wouldn't, but I, but I can see someone talking okay. themselves into yeah. that. But excitement. That's something I, I don't know. Really? I, don't, I, don't, I, li- I think he's so funny, though. You think he's funny? Yeah. It I cracks guess. me up. But I guess that's I wouldn't be working for him, though. He's like your funny uncle? Yeah. But no, yeah, I don't know what they're excited about. This is definitely weird. That that's that's a that's a deeply disturbing moment as well. So. Yeah. All right. right. What else we got? We have... Uh, oh, uh, my ma- God. Oh, this is good. I like yeah. this. Pete. And shout out to Leslie Lee's really funny tweet. Uh, 
Leslie Lee, also a co-host of Struggle Session, goes, there's someone whose job it is to train white politicians to sound like Obama. They were hired by John Ossoff, John Ossoff and now Buttigieg. Okay. This yeah, is this, Buttig- this, is, this is Pete at the Nevada Black Legislative Caucus. Yeah. Good, afternoon, good afternoon, Nevada Black Caucus. Thank you so much for having me with you. He's kind of nervous. To Chair Monroe Moreno, thank you for your leadership. So honored to be joined with Speaker Frierson, with, with Chair McCurdy, with my longtime friend, Attorney General Ford, and everyone here who is making history with the historic diversity in the majority women assembly right here in Nevada. We are watching you from around the country, and we are proud of you. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's clearly uh, imitating Obama here. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, he is, he's kind of like one of those, like an alien parasite. He, like, takes on the characteristics yeah, of an, like all the, pe- the people around. Like a zealot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So he's trying to do, I, I guess this is what, what his brain is telling him to do in yeah. front of a black audience, yeah. which is... Sound like Obama? Yeah, yeah exactly. But it, it kind of came out of his head too fast. Oh, my God. Can we just watch the very beginning once more? Get in and with it. Get in and with it. Good afternoon, Good afternoon. <laughs> Black Caucus. Thank you so much for having me with you. Why is it so funny? It really is. So Good funny. afternoon. <laughs> He's no, so look, smooth. If we ran for president, we'd be we'd be okay. Up. But we're not. And if yeah, we did, so. they have the right to make fun of us. That's for that. true. That's a good one. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's good, right? Yep. All right. What else we got? Oh. This is a really scary Bloomberg thing. This is um, from friend of the show, Max Blumenthal, guest of the show, who um, tweeted that there's this weird footage of bizarre and revealing footage of Mike Bloomberg halting a press conference for over a minute to stare down and humiliate a disabled reporter in a wheelchair whose audio device accidentally went off. So watch this. For workers' rights or immigrant rights and for gay rights. Uh, If we can turn off the... uh Mayor, that's like your theme. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that. Can we, said uh, something's playing. Can we just stop this and maybe we'll start again? Look at the guy behind him, like, gawking. Okay. I understand that. Still turn it off. Blah, blah, blah. It's a little bit too important for playing music. <laughs> playing can we music. start again as soon as we can do this? So, so you got are you looking forward for to the Mike Bloomberg presidency? So much. He's so condescending to everybody. It's unbelievable. And, and he doesn't even disguise it. Disguise right, yeah. it. Isn't he a terrible boss and he has like open when he has like an open office plan and yells at people all the time? I don't know. But yeah. I believe that story. Yeah. I like that story. Yeah. I hope it's true. This, this is this is not a good deal. And this is like a great metaphor for like he's like kind of Trump light in some ways because of course yeah, Trump the same, made similar. fun of yeah, he's like a more polite. Trump did a, a borscht belt. Yeah. You know, more, more offensive impersonation of a disabled right. uh reporter and this is like the the kindler gentler well this is this is bloomberg's thing is to bristle he bristles right and he's just uh he's just evincing displeasure with people that's like his whole campaign slogan is like i i I am evincing displeasure at the ineffectiveness of everybody but i eat big gay ice cream right yeah exactly so vote for me god what a jerk right yeah unbelievable and then this this is what we're gonna have to get used to for the next wow i can't believe i never heard you so earnest about someone Really? God, what a jerk, yeah. I can't stand this guy. How come? I mean, I can't either, but I'm just curious. This guy, to me, represents everything that sucks about this country. You know, he's got, he is a completely entitled, you know, he, he, think, he thinks because he made a lot of money in a, in a basically a semi-failure-proof business that he invented the wheel, that he's right. a genius. He's actually just, you know, a guy, who, he's, he's a, 
guy who made a whole a, a ton of money, but that doesn't make him a good person. Right. Doesn't make him a, a effective in anything. Right. But he's he's completely convinced of his own amazingness. He thinks that everybody uh, should buy into him as much as he buys into himself. He has a an obviously dismissive attitude towards everybody else, and he and he thinks that we should be we should reward him for that right. attitude. That's the thing that's amazing about this guy. He goes into politics and he's used to being told. How great he is, and he and he thinks that this 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 formula should be repeated nationally, and it's it's right. it, it will be so annoying if if he is if his views about everything are validated, uh, you know, by this crazy set of circumstances, uh, and I don't know. Called I, the Democratic Party being awful and totally enabling right? him and coddling him. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting point, Matt, is that I don't usually agree with this person, but I got it. Let's play a, an interesting. Um, insight, uh, some interesting points made by Megan McCain, because she kind of has some good things to say about the problem with Bloomberg. And uh, the other women of The View sound like, t- I mean, they're, they're often idiotic, but here they just sound like, like, like Megan McCain is a voice of reason, which is rare. Okay. First of all, that's 2011 on PBS. That's not something yeah. he said after a few drinks, like at dinner privately. Exactly. That's something he said on air. So but where this the smoke, is, there's just one right, second. Yeah. He it's also in the in, there's a lawsuit the Washington Post dug up where he he was sued for saying um, there was a woman who was having trouble finding a nanny for her child, and he said it's a blanking baby. It doesn't know the difference between you and anyone else. All you need is some black who doesn't even have to speak English to rescue it from a burning building. You know, all I so have this to is, say again, this is, but I'm just saying you want right. to go up against Trump and you want to take the moral high ground, Democrats. I don't know if this guy is. Going to be the well, I have to say, there are very fine people on both sides. That was in Charlottesville. Yeah. He said that uh, removing not, Confederate but, monuments but, was trying to take away our but you want to this take is the moral high ground. Belittled the Black Lives Movement. He questioned whether Barack Obama. I'm not defending was, Trump because I'm attacking. Well, who are you? Bloomberg. What are you saying then? Who I'm are you saying that, I'm for? saying that you're you shiny, you sparkly. I'm so saying you're shiny, for? sparkly guy who's surging right now. Which, by the way, everybody surges in primary politics. Well, yeah, I, I remember when that Hendricks out last did week. and Henry Kane, Herman Cain did. Every candidate surges at one point or another. He still thinks the Central Park Five because he's a sparkly little. Because you know what? I just think it's so interesting that you have a problem that we are talking about a candidate the way we would any other candidate. He just happens to be at the top, getting the attention right now, which is why we're talking. About right now, what I'm supposed to give Bloomberg a pass? Not on this show. I'd like not to know this who, I'd like to know who you're going to vote for. Yeah. Well, who are you voting for? Who I vote for yeah. is none of your business. But I am not voting for Trump, and I'm sure as hell not voting for Bloomberg. So then you're not going to vote, okay? Yeah. So, so you're not, not in your vote. business. So you're not voting for Trump, and you're not voting for a Democrat. Who I vote for? That is, she yes. literally deduces that because Meghan McCain says she's not going to vote for Trump or Bloomberg, she's not going to vote. Right. Yeah. What does she know that we don't? Well, I don't know. It, right. Yeah, exactly. And and, and Bloomberg is definitely going to win. It's also so transparent. The only answer they have to this guy sucks is, well, Trump is bad. Oh, well, that's right. It's that's just, the bigger thing. It's uh, like literally that's how they think. Like Joy, um, Joy Behar, her response to because what's interesting is Meghan McCain is making a moral and strategic argument. Like when we talked with Ro uh, Khanna and I made the wonderful Point about politics and policy. I really blew him away. Yeah, that was really amazing. Really blew me away. Really blew Matt away. No, but I'm being serious. Like, she is saying that it's it's bad. It's a bad move for the Democrats to run as the moral high ground uh, party when against Trump. When against you have Trump a guy with, with a little someone who is has, yeah, who is, and so and Joy Behar's response is just reminding us how much worse Trump is. That's not really the most like. 
winning message. Also, people are so tired of that. They're I so know. tired That's of every time all, yeah. you say anything about anything. Oh, Trump this, Trump right, that. Right, exactly. Who cares? You know, the guy sucks. Can yeah. you find somebody who doesn't suck? Well, you know, what's interesting is it's kind of a parallel or this is part of the same thing with what we saw with John, um, John Favreau saying like, uh, you know, it's because you criticize Blue uh, Buttigieg and uh, Klobuchar. Now we can't. Now it's that much harder to be taken seriously when we criticize um, Bloomberg. It's like, no, you you don't get to just not criticize someone because someone else is bad. Right. Like Blue, like Buttigieg is not good because Michael Bloomberg is worse, and Bloomberg is not good because Trump is worse. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that that's the whole equation that the entire like Democratic Party yeah, establishment is based on. Tr- Trump is bad, therefore X is right. whatever. Like that's right. the whole formula. The it, Dems just, it just doesn't work. Better yeah. than Trump. Yeah, exactly. I know. It was, and Joy Behar was like amazing to watch this liberal brainworms. Like she just can't understand why her next quote of Trump. She keeps naming things. She keeps saying things that he said. She doesn't understand why that doesn't take away from Meghan McCain's point. Yeah, and, and you, you can see the gears are like, yeah, like they did. They, yeah. they will right. not go to the next she, yeah. stop. And like she they, can also. And they're all they're all sitting there on the air, like like their brains are all frozen. Yeah, it's and they're amazing. frozen on B- Bloomberg. If you're not going to vote for Bloomberg or Trump, I guess you're sitting this election out. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Not a stone moment, but a... No, you know, sorry. Uh, Not a stone moment, but it was both a good... Um, I liked it as a segue out of the stone moments, but also I felt stone watching it because I was like, wait, why do I agree with Meghan McCain? That's weird. That's true. All right, let's talk to uh, Crystal and Slugger. Let's do it. So we are so excited to be talking to Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, who are the co-hosts of uh, The Hills Rising. And Welcome. co-authors of the book, the Pop- A Populist Guide to 2020. Which got how high? On- uh, I think it was number five yeah. in new releases, so not too shabby, not I'd bad. say. Wow. Congratulations. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So you've been on tour? You've been doing all that? <laughs> a very uh, abbreviated short yes. tour. We were out in LA. We're good, getting ready to come to New York on March 6th. Mm. We're, we've got a DC DC date. show, April 24th, so we're excited. Yeah. Well, the book is uh, is really cool. Let's talk about some of the themes in it. First of all, has anything that's happened in the race since you finished the book, changed your perspective on anything that you've written? Uh, like, in other words, do you, do you view things at all differently because of you know, Bloomberg's entrance in the race, anything like that? How does your support of Bloomberg change this? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent question. Yeah. Um, I mean, that really is the dynamic that couldn't have been foreseen in the book, I would say. Although the way that it's playing out is very consistent with some of the predictions that are made in the book. So, you know, certainly the sort of core rot of the democratic establishment, the cravenness with which so many have thrown themselves at him, you know, discarding with any previously stated principles, all that is very much foreseen in the book, even if the specific character of Michael Bloomberg is not. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, with Bloomberg in particular, all he does is expose exactly what we talked about. He has manipulated all the levers kind of within the party and within our economy in order to show how do you get $60 billion in this country? It's by selling out America, you know, to China for Chinese interests. It's about owning, being literally an oligarch and owning your own company. I actually wrote about one of the chapters in the book is about Bloomberg News and their decision in order to, uh, in order to basically just not investigate Mike and how that affects the entire media market when everybody in D.C. in journalism wants to go work 
for Michael Bloomberg, right. then how does that affect how they're going to cover the race? And this extends to everybody. This extends to Jeff Bezos and his ownership of the Washington Post. It's a structural flaw. And that's, I mean, all he does is really reveal what's happening. Yeah. I mean, look, Facebook already changed their rules for him. Mm -hmm. Like, it tells you everything. <laughs> because not only do you have every journalist in this town in New York knows one day they may need a Bloomberg paycheck. Every political consultant now knows that they may need a Bloomberg paycheck. And all of these big corporate media companies are on the take with the ad dollars that he's injecting into the system. So it's like a total corruption writ large. Yeah. How did Facebook change the rules for him? Oh, so, you know, he has this whole uh, meme strategy that you've probably heard about. And so they weren't allowing basically political uh, paid meme content. And they decided that coincidentally, when wow. Michael Bloomberg decided wow. he wanted to throw millions at this, that this was going to be something that they would embrace. Were, were you surprised wow. at all when, when, they, when uh, they made the announcement or when it came out that they were going to have that uh, sort of non-aggression policy within Bloomberg where they weren't going to go after, uh, inv investigate him. I was kind of surprised by the reaction of journalists. I thought, I thought other people in the business would be more hostile to that decision uh, and that there would have been more criticism, but there was almost none. I, I, I was very surprised. I guess it's because people are worried they might get a job, yeah. might get a job someday. I mean, honestly, Trump was the only person who said anything. Yeah. And I think that's part of why there wasn't more of a reaction because no one wants to ever agree with Trump. Yeah, oh no, that, that's what happened, right? Is right. that Trump what happened right. is that Trump. the Trump campaign seized on this and they were like, okay, we're going to not credential Bloomberg news reporters. So then it became a story about Trump versus the free press and not a literal oligarch using a media company with his name on it in order to manipulate the news cycle. Like I said, it's a very bad thing that Bloomberg News is not investigating journalists. And, and what we're learning now, I mean, I covered this uh, on our show today is that Bloomberg News has quashed stories into Chinese government officials in order to maintain the core Bloomberg terminal business in China. So this has always been a cynical attempt by Bloomberg to advance his interests, his core business interests. It didn't even actually have that much to do with media. And I think, Matt, to your point, the reaction, it just tells you everything you need to know about how the rest of the media views all this. Well, and you guys remember how much, you remember how much shit David Sirota got um, who's a Bernie Sanders senior advisor, who is one of the most effective operatives, I think, out there. But there was this whole pseudo scandal about, oh, was he talking to the Sanders yeah, campaign right. while he was still doing journalism? <laughs> Meanwhile, you have people who literally go straight from Bloomberg News right onto the Bloomberg campaign, and no one says anything about that. Kind of weird. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a more traditional career arc. For yeah, the, exactly. At least they, they consider that, right? So Yeah, it's a decorum yeah. thing. But I, I also think it was uh, what what Bloomberg did. Like, if he was really going to be ethical about it, he should have just the, the only way to do it would be to tell his staff that they can write whatever they want about him. Because it, as is, it puts his you know twenty seven hundred employees in an incredibly difficult right. position, right? Because they all have to admit to you know muzzling themselves on behalf of their employers. Which I I don't know. I'm just, I'm just surprised there wasn't more of a reaction. That there wasn't. Oh, I'm always surprised there isn't even the air of of uh, fairness or legitimacy. Right. Like that, that they don't even like gesture, make the gesture that they're going to do something in an ethical way. Right. I know they're not going to, but I'm always surprised that they announce it. Kind of like the theme of today's show is, you know, people saying that elites need to have more power. I'm just, I'm not surprised people think this. I'm just surprised that people say it out loud. Yeah, in the book, you talk about the formula that the Democrats could be using to win, and you use Kentucky as, the, as an example. 
I mean, I think right now people are looking at Bloomberg and they're saying, this is how we have to win. We have to spend $60 billion. That's how you beat Trump. But there's another way that you delineate in the book. Could you talk a little bit about that and what the what do you think the example is? Yeah. And I think this is part of where, look, part of the exploration of the book is where Sagar from the left, from the right and me from the left, like where there's overlap. And we both basically believe in putting economic populism at the center of campaigns, both as a moral issue, like those are the issues, Medicare for all, and from my perspective, Green New Deal, like directly economic issues, union rights should be at the center of campaigns as a moral issue, but also as an electability issue. So in Kentucky, um, when, you know, Democrats were in the middle of impeachment and the story that came out from Kentucky at the national level was, oh, look, impeachment is working for us, right? It didn't scare people off in Kentucky. But having lived there and knowing the characters involved, I can tell you it is the polar opposite of that. That campaign was run explicitly on a pro-worker, pro-teacher, pro-labor message. And it was actually the, the Bevin campaign, the Republican, who was obsessing about what was happening in D.C. and talking about impeachment all the time. And voters rejected that entirely. And it wasn't just Kentucky doesn't have, you know, a massive suburban population where you can make up for the rural areas. So it wasn't just that, like, white suburban women came out. It was also that Democrats were able to turn the tide back in coal country, in eastern Kentucky, in places that had been sort of historically Democratic, but had turned to, to Trump and turned to Republicans very much on the national level. And Kentucky Democrats were able to win some of those folks back and win some of those counties back by focusing on a unifying sort of economic first message. Yeah. So I think that's like... That's really the core of my political philosophy in general. And like I said, it's not just about winning, right? Because I think for a long time, Democrats have just been obsessed with winning. And that yeah. leads to things like Michael Bloomberg, right? Where you're like, if all I care about is winning, and we're constantly told that the way to win is to get the most right-wing person you can find, then you end up with Michael Bloomberg. And not only is it a disaster on a moral level, but you end up ultimately losing too. His politics are the polar opposite of what I think winning politics look like in this country. Aggressively, socially, culturally liberal and economic, complete corporatist, right? Oligarch, corporatist, etc. cetera. Um, very condescending, full of contempt for most of the country. Um, that is, to me, like the antithesis of how Democrats should be running. The interesting thing you talk about, uh, the overlap between what uh, Sagar, what you think of from, from the right, and Crystal, you, you from the left, you both have frustrations with uh, sort of modern identity politics. Can you talk about what you both think the failings are there and why it's it's not necessarily a successful strategy for, for Democrats? Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's what Crystal was just talking about. And it's funny because of so much of what I think the most re successful Republican governorship and campaign in America right now is explicitly run on a pro-worker message. If you think about this, it's Ron DeSantis in Florida. He's got a 74% approval rating, and he did it by appropriating money in order to save the Everglades. He did it by, by declaring the, the this year, 2020, to be the year of the teacher. He did it by pairing all of that, an economic populist message, with immigration restriction, which is something where we depart. But I think that that is what a key area to me that shows how you can actually govern in an economically populist way that is not built on white identity politics or from the left perspective, identity politics writ large. The one thing that cuts across all identity is class. And if you, it's funny because that's, that's really what the Bloomberg candidacy 
has showed us in the, it's an explicit affirmation of class divide and class politics when you see young black people supporting Bernie Sanders, middle-class suburban black people or older voters with more middle-class interests supporting a Michael Bloomberg or Joe Biden. That has nothing to do with race record. It actually has much more to do with how they look at their class interests. And that's actually, I think, an inspiring message to both of us because how else can you live in a multi-ethnic, like non-homogenous country of 300 million people? The only way to do it is to focus on working class interests and it's just, it's much more about, the book is just about what if the right and the left fought about the interests of the workers instead of the interests of plutocrats. Right. Right now, as you all know, there, there is a bipartisan consensus in Washington. Like the idea that there's gridlock right. is actually right. a fantasy. There's plenty of bipartisan consensus when it comes to sending young working class men and women off to die in war. Right. There's plenty of bipartisan consensus. Just look just this year on new trade deals. That's always there. There's always bipartisan consensus to cut rich people's taxes more through loopholes and giveaways and whatever. So rather than the, both the parties fighting over who can most cater to the wealthy, which I believe is the situation we have today, what if they both were fighting over right. who could actually right. win the working class? You know, on identity specifically, it's not that I don't think racism exists, sexism is real, like bigotry is a real thing. Like, let's be clear about that. But substituting a trailblazing identity for actual change is so much less than what this country needs. Yeah. So, you know, and part of the political analysis too, part of why the pundits have been so consistently wrong this election cycle is because they assume that voters vote on identity when they really don't. I mean, you'll remember at the beginning of this race, we were told Kamala Harris was going to be the one. And I specifically read like the CNN analysis, Chris Eliza and Harry Anton said that it was, you know, her trailblazing identity was going to resonate with black voters. And that was the key base. And that's why she was going to succeed. But it turned out that's not how voters thought about this at all. They looked at her platform. They looked at the fact that she didn't know, seem to know what she wanted to fight for. It was just sort of standard issue neoliberalism. And they said, thank you, next. And that wasn't white voters that rejected her. That was primarily minority voters in the party who said, this is not actually what we're after. In a, in a related chapter, you talk, Crystal, you talked about why, why Pete Buttigieg fell flat with millennials, right? It was a similar situation. Right. They said, oh, he's young and he's gay, so of course millennials are going to like him. It was, just, it was a total non sequitur logically. But what, what do you think happened there? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, and you guys have probably been involved in these ventures, like media ventures, where they want to appeal to millennials. <laughs> so they hire like a millennial correspondent and they say the word millennial a lot. And it's always like boomers who set this up and it always gets lots of funding and then completely fails. <laughs> I mean, Pete is exactly what a boomer thinks a young person should want but he doesn't threaten their own sort of class interests, right? So they can feel good about, oh, he's trailblazing, he's gay, he's young, he's a fresh face. They can feel good about this is a voice of change, but not actually threaten their own bottom line interests. Meanwhile, people, I mean, I'm almost exactly the same age as Pete. We're like two months apart, born two months apart. And so people who are his contemporaries we know who he is. Like, we went to college with this dude, right? We see exactly who he is. The careerism, the ambition, the willingness to change your values, however it suits you at that moment. And also the willing to, willingness to uncritically participate 
at McKinsey in an industry that basically was designed to sell out the working class in this country, which is what so many of the quote unquote best and brightest minds of our generation were told that we should do. Whether it was McKinsey or Wall Street, right? Everybody I went to school with at UVA wanted to be like an investment banker, right? That was the thing. And so the fact that he went there is less of a problem to me than the fact that he has no critical analysis of that system and the problems inherent in it. Crystal um, and Matt, you, the three of us will often get kind of like criticized as being Trumpian, um, the Trump and left. Uh, They will try to taint us. And I'm sure they do that with you because of your association with, among other people, Sagar. Um, but Sagar, I was curious if you get that from the right. Like, do people try to taint you as like Sandersian or or something or like a Marxist because of your work with Crystal? And Katie, I get it all the time. They think they call me the chief Bernie bro correspondent of the right. Um, <laughs> they you no, know, I get I get it constantly for my so they're like, why don't you call out these Venezuela loving dog eating socialists on their show? And I'm like, well, you know, if you want to run on that you can be my guest and you can lose and we can all have a Mitt Romney campaign in 2012 all over again yes I get a lot of criticism um so does Tucker Carlson I think a lot of it is that they call us like they basically say that we're progressives in a sheep's clothing and that any concession of using government power is a concession to the left because it will inevitably get taken over and then we'll all you know all of our freedoms will go away. And again, I, they have no response every single, every single time. I said, what if you, you know, take this hat off and you consider for a second that corporate power over your life is just as detrimental as government power. They can't even, they don't even have like the mental framework to process that. And so a lot of what I do on the show is just try to break through that mold. But yeah, certainly there's a lot of, you know, you know, people on the Trump campaign are not particularly happy with me because I'm like, what are you guys doing running this socialism sucks banners at every single debate? Like most, a lot of people on the right, especially with the Trump phenomenon is they demand like total fealty to the, you know, to make America great again, like Trump himself. Whereas like I look at it and I think a lot of other economic populists on the right are very much have a fealty to that message. And you're willing to call out anybody who strays away from it. And so that, that's really what the dynamics are. But you're, you are very right, Katie. I, I take a lot of incoming fire on this. Well, people get, and yeah. I shouldn't say, yeah. because I think our show, like the people who watch our show, which has grown really quickly and there's been a big response to, like, I think most people actually do understand our politics because it's the politics of like 70% of America. Yes, right. You know, 70% <laughs> of America is completely disgusted with everyone here in this town in D.C., yeah. right? So they can wrap their head around it no problem. But what you see, and you see this like Glenn Greenwald is the perfect example. The fact that he actually has principles, or Tulsi Gabbard is another great example. The fact that he actually has principles that he's consistent with across administrations, not just like when it serves his own party interests, people here can't understand that. Like they can't wrap their head around it. They think there must be something like nefarious going on. Who's paying him, right? What are his motives, et cetera? And it's like, no, actually he called out W. Bush, when that was the guy who was messing up and going against his prince, we called out Obama, he calls out Trump, he calls out the left, he calls out, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, the guy just actually is consistent. And it's so unusual and rare in this town that it blows people's minds. Doesn't your show also, it explodes a huge stereotype in the media, which is that 
left and right cannot communicate rationally. I mean, there, there, there just is not a media show, and there hasn't been for decades, where, uh, where the premise was like yours. If Republicans and Democrats were on the same set, they had to be ferociously yeah. arguing all the time, like in, like in Crossfire. Uh, do you ever talk to people within the industry about, do people doubt that this format would work? And um, are they surprised at how, how much of a response you're getting? I mean, people in the industry just don't understand the show. They only recently woke up to it, which is like when the book hit the Amazon top 10, they were like, whoa, something is going on here. <laughs> that, that's basically, honestly, what made people uh, even start to pay attention. They don't, yeah, Matt, they think that right and left can only coexist on, in a morning Joe uh, framework where it turns out everybody's just real, neoliberal. Or they think that it has to be a CNN panel where people are screaming at each other over whether Trump should be impeached or not, or talking about Roger Stone or Paul Manafort's case. No, what we did is we just went a level deeper than cable news and then tried to take a shared analysis and then look at it from different... I mean, this is the funny thing. Whenever people come on our show, they love the types of questions that we ask because we don't ask any of the simple cable answers that are designed to get the exact response that the host knows that he's going to get so they can have a weird sparring conversation for a two-minute bite and that will go viral amongst media reporters. Instead, we're actually just, whenever I have Bernie people on my show, I don't necessarily agree with them all the time. I'm just like, hey, here's some good faith criticism that I've heard. What is your response? Yeah, I think that's been the other interesting thing is we genuinely have, we try to have a range of voices on, like genuine range of voices from the populist left, from the populist right, and from the more establishment-minded framework. And I even personally wasn't sure if that would work, right? Because there is a lot of interest in like just cheerleading for our side and seeing our perspective and all of that. So to me, it's been a very hopeful thing. One of the things that our fans tell us all the time is that that's part of what they love about the show is that you can see that debate happening in real time where you know people with a more pro-establishment view are actually getting challenged and having to engage in a back and forth and having to even like concede some points in certain cases and, and same goes our way as well. So um, to me that response has been a very hopeful part of doing this whole show and it's it's been also surprising like we have a lot of a lot of leftists who watch the show. We have a lot of people on the populist right. But we also have like just a lot of, you know, kind of normal politically engaged folks who have had their minds changed by some of the perspectives on the show who have reached out to us and said, you know, I was going in this direction and now I see things differently. It really has had a broad sort of base of support that has surprised me. Another thing that I love about the show is that you are just honest about your perspectives. I mean, I think that like one of the biggest dangers in the media is the pseudo objectivity. So when people watch you, just like if they watch us, they know where we're coming from more or less. Um, and with you guys, of course, yeah, know that we have that like fundamental pro Bloomberg framework. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, you recently and, and it's, it's also interesting how I can talk to you, obviously, Crystal, but you Sagar, like you, are honest about the Bernie bias in a way that some of my liberal friends with whom I agree on certain things that I disagree with you are not. It's just like you, like there's a good faith, I feel like a view and discussion. Katie, the reason why, the reason why is, and Matt will intimately understand this from his media criticism is the same frameworks of which they are biased against Bernie is the same frameworks unless there's their bias against 
Republicans. It's the same framework against their bias against Trump. A lot of it is just, it's biased toward not an anti-Bernie, pro-Clinton end. It's biased toward a pro-corporate neoliberal lens. And anybody who attacks that is somebody that has to be destroyed. That's why I call it out because this exact same structural forces that keep Biden out, or sorry, Bernie out of the media and have basically crushed him uh, or have tried to crush him and it shows to be not working are the same thing that they did to Republicans in 2016, the same things that they do to people who are populist and on the right. So I have a, you know, you have a real responsibility, like Crystal was talking about with Glenn Greenwald, is to remain consistent so that people know that when you're calling out one thing that is helpful to your side, that it's not because you have just a partisan personal interest. It's to call it out whenever you see it. Yeah. You know, I do want to um, say that uh, you guys and all the guests that we have on the show have really, like, educated and informed us and informed the book. I mean, Matt, we reference Hate Inc. multiple times in the book. Your thoughts on media criticism have been very, very influential um, with, I think, both of us. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we're really grateful for the input that you guys provide there as well. Yeah, well, I mean, your, your show has been is, it's been so cool to watch it grow. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think one of the things that, that people are responding to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, your show is a, is a lot about where the intersection between right and left happens, right? And one of the big ones is just frustration with the media, isn't yeah. it? I mean, isn't that one of the reasons why you're getting such a big audience is because people from both sides are kind of they're they're frustrated. They don't they, they feel like they're being lied to or manipulated, and that's why they're looking for this new this new kind of voice. I mean, did you all see that moment on MSNBC on the day of the New Hampshire primary when you know Ari Melber is there, my former co-host, by the way, who's interviewing voters about who they're voting for and why. And this woman basically grabs the mic and is like, "I want you to know why I'm voting for Bernie <laughs> Sanders, and it's because you and your colleagues are so biased against him and smear him." So so consistently that I was on the fence and I was like, you know what? I'm voting for Bernie. Obviously I'm paraphrasing her, but that was basically the message. Yeah. And what is incredible about 2016 and no lessons were learned, obviously. And what we see playing out now is they didn't even give Bernie Sanders a shot until like a week ago. Right. And they're still like, well, maybe Pete is the real front runner. Right. Or, you know, maybe Bloomberg is the real thing that's going to happen here. And Meanwhile, people have made up their own minds. It just exposes how sort of fragile and hollow and, you know, ineffective and impotent all of these supposed gatekeepers are at this point. How many essays have we seen about how Bernie's unelectable? You can't, you'll, you will certainly lose with Bernie, right? David Frum had his thing. The Bulwark had their thing. Jonathan (laughs) Tate, like all of them come out with it. And what happens? Bernie surges in terms of electability specifically, where he now leads the field in electability. Like people looked at that and they said, no, forget it. You're wrong. You've been wrong about everything else and you're wrong about this too. Yeah. Like, thank you, David, from for, you know, giving your record on the Iraq war. Everything you say is like you're it's like, a, you know, you're endorsing Bernie basically because your record is so bad in terms of your predictions. But yeah, what was amazing is that and it's so funny because that literally was coming right into my head when you brought that example up. What's amazing is, I don't know if you saw this, but the woman who, yeah, I saw that, yeah. yeah, she says that she was considering not just Warren, which isn't that surprising, but she was considering Michael Bennett. So the fact that you have someone who's not a raging leftist, but who's just a cognizant, aware, non-comatose person um, can just see how unfair MSNBC is towards Sanders. And she said that they were so cynical in the way that they were saying, like, last time he was doing a lot better because he was running against one person, 
versus multiple people. Like this is just a basic question of math. Um, yeah, I thought that was just incredible. And, you know, like the, the Bernie bro narrative thing drives me crazy, as, as you guys are well aware. And I was thinking like, aren't the real bros, like they're bros um, and every candidate has, has toxic supporters, quote unquote toxic. And an issue is no one defines any of these terms, what toxic is, what harassment is, the difference between harassment and like political analysis Education. and criticism. Um, but Bernie's the only person who has to deal with those attacks on him and his supporters and the anti-Semitic attacks against him and the racist attacks against his people who work for him. And then he has the bros of like MSNBC, like those are they're bullies too. Like Chuck Todd calling his uh, supporters brown shirts, or Joanne Reed getting a body an, uh, language. Yeah, well, Crystal, you wrote the, I mean, you wrote a chapter about this in the book. I mean, what 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 did what did MSNBC? How much damage do you think that they did, and how did they do it? I mean, you wrote a whole chapter about this. Explain a living. You obviously have personal experience there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the fact that they decided what they wanted to make their consistent hour after hour, segment after segment, editorial focus on was Russiagate did a dramatic disservice to the left and has ultimately put Trump in an incredibly strong position to, to win re-election, which he doesn't deserve, right? So the fact that they fixated on this elite concern, which essentially turned out to mostly be conspiracy theory, and we're not talking about a few segments during the day, as you guys know, this was relentless. Every segment, every hour, the highest rated programs, and they led this you know, liberal audience down the garden path, constantly promising when the next shoe would drop, that would be the thing. Then the walls would close in, then the walls would close in. And now, even after impeachment, now people are starting to say, maybe we should impeach him again, right? Maybe then that would be the thing. By focusing on that, instead of the very real broken promises made to working class people, making the case about now he's floating, you know, now in his budget, he wants to cut social security, right? Putting entitlements on the table, giving a massive tax cut to the rich. These are antithetical to what he said he would do in office, but rather than prosecuting that economic case, they focused on elite concerns that literally no real person actually cares. <laughs> like no persuadable person cares about. How do you see this playing out? I mean, the, 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 this whole scenario has been so unusual with there's the, the, the field is too big. Bloomberg has jumped in. It looks like Bloomberg in a weird way is helping Sanders by jumping in late. He's going to take vote, votes away from people who are challenging Sanders early in the race. Uh, how do you see it playing out? And do you think that, that Sanders is actually going to end up with enough votes to win in the first ballot? I'll let Chris go first. So yeah. Sagar and I have a little bit yeah. of a difference of opinion on this. I think that ultimately the Democratic establishment is a bunch of cowards. So even though they will want to steal it from Bernie, mm -hmm. and I think he's very much on track to get a plurality of the delegates. I don't know if he's on track to get a majority of the delegates. He could be. Um, I think that they will be too afraid. And this is where actually the Bernie bros turn into a positive thing because they know those people are crazy and they know they will burn the party down if they steal it from Bernie. I mean, that is their feeling about it, right? If you take the nomination from Bernie when he wins a plurality of the delegates and you hand it to Michael Bloomberg, there is a very large chunk of the Bernie base that are not going to vote blue no matter who. And so I think ultimately they will realize that it will utterly destroy the Democratic Party and they will be too afraid and too 
unable to get their shit together to actually pull that off. So, Sagar's yeah. not so sure. Yeah, Sagar doesn't agree, I, I take it, yeah. I'm a little, I'm much more cynical. I think yeah. the Democratic establishment, I, w- they, I wish they were as much cowards as Crystal says, because right. I think the Republicans are actually much bigger cowards. But whenever it comes to this, Emily's, uh, if you see the sheer amount of money that is at risk with Bernie, I just don't see how these establishment stooges will be will allow it to happen if they have the chance. I really think right. there is an opportunity. Look, if Michael Bloomberg gets 30% and he picks somebody, this is my new obsession. I think he's going to pick Stacey Abrams because she checks all the boxes, allegedly progressive, on the team because she took $5 million of her organization money. Woman of color, you know, ascendant star within the party, had the response to Trump. If he, if Bloomberg does that, on the second ballot, can realistically make a case that he's got a progressive woman of color with his money that they could boo in. He's 79 years old. She could take that chance. That's a ticket that they could absolutely get behind, and it preserves their economic interests. I'm, look, I don't know if it will happen, but I think they're certainly going to try. They didn't even try with Trump. That's the one thing to remember is that they were so afraid of Trump supporters and all of that that they just decided not to even do it. They quashed it before the convention. And when you have the opportunity, if Trump did not have, by the way, the majority of the delegates going into the into that convention, 100%, I know this for a fact, they would have tried it. Yeah. Would it have succeeded? I don't know. But they would have tried it. So Sanders is in that position. And I'm just deeply more cynical because I understand the structural forces that are at work here. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that are on the line. That's one thing Wall Street has learned from all of this is that with the presidency, with the ascendant of executive orders and of populism and all of that is literally 75 years of your investments are at risk. Are they really going to let all their down payments through philanthropy just, you know, go to waste when they have the chance? I don't think so. And that is, I mean, this is where I do go back and forth because on the other hand, look, the reality is that a Sanders administration is much more of a threat to their continued both access to power and yeah. big flow and ascendancy Everything. in this town than a Trump administration. Like, a Trump wins four more years. All right, you try again with another neoliberal in four years, and you got another go at it. You get to maintain your status. You get to get your gigs from the DNC. All of that remains basically in place. You're just in the opposition, which is, you know, a, a situation they're familiar with. What they are not familiar with is a guy who says, no, 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 we're not doing any of that anymore. All of you people are, you know, in exile. We don't want this part of the party anymore. That is a much more of a danger to their ultimate sort of interest than a Trump reelect. So that's where I go back and forth. But I do err on the side of believing that they are too cowardly to actually. <laughs> well, we have to make it so that they're embarrassed. Like we have to make it so that they'll be afraid to pull it off. I don't know how to do that, but. Yeah, I, I, I'm with Sagar on this one. I think I think there's too much at stake. I think they'll. Can, can you? Guys- I mean, and, and also, they can argue that the they won't even be breaking the rules if he doesn't get enough to win on the first ballot. They can argue that's how the that's how the party is designed. So right, Matt. That's the thing. Barney Frank is on the chairman of these committees, right? Like Tom oh. Perez has basically stacked it with people. I mean, I think Barney Frank literally works for a bank right now. But it's yeah, like these these are the people. It's I mean, it's just there's too much money at risk, and the, I mean, the left runs DC. Every single every single building here is a professional union or a, you know which you know is against Medicare for all because they struck these deals or it's like a think tank which is funded with all this money. I mean these are the people who have so much invested 
in the current process, they can't let it go down without a fight if they have the chance. Their donors won't let them, by the way. With Trump, at least he had the majority of the delegates. If he doesn't have the majority, they're going to fight. Whether it works or not, I don't know, but they have to. All right. In, in, in a theoretical universe where Sanders does win the nomination, how is that going to be covered? In other words, are we actually going to see channels like MSNBC and CNN breaking against Sanders? What will actually happen in that universe? I, I actually don't know the answer. Yeah, to that will question. they be throwing up in their mouths? I really don't know because they've spent so much time saying Trump is, you know, the greatest danger <laughs> to American democracy. Right. Yeah, I mean, they are correct. all the way okay, in okay. on that narrative. And meanwhile, look, they're at odds with their, you know, with their customer base because while there is a sliver of the Democratic primary electorate that doesn't like Sanders, he's consistently rated the most favorable, you know, among all the candidates. So their own viewers like Bernie and don't have like a major issue with him. So I think it would be hard for them to then just like flip and either become neutral or like sort of, you know, suddenly see the good side in Trump. I think they'll be, I think they'll, I think their ratings will be very bad. I, I think they'll be in a really tough spot, basically. Really I think I think they will I have, I think they'll have a very tough, tough time. And I ultimately think Crystal's right. The ratings are gonna plummet mostly because they have not prepared their viewers for this race. And they have not prepared themselves for this race. They don't have the right analysts to actually accurately tell them what the dynamics of the race are. And that is why, I mean, that's why I think our show is going to do really well. That's why I think your show is going to do really well. Because we've been tracking this from the beginning. We, you, if you, we have the right frameworks to understand how Sanders and a Trump race actually would go, whereas they're going to focus on just the stupidest, most astroturfed thing and miss the broader story of how most of the country wants to burn our institutions to the ground. When you don't even understand that, you're not capable of understanding right. that race. Yeah. I think you made a really, you really make a uh, saga in the book. You make a really good point at one point where you talk about how Trump won by running against free mar- market orthodoxy, right? Which is a, it's a, it's an observation that it's so obvious and simple. You, you can't even see it anywhere on television because it runs counter to what right. people believe about what happened in 2016. Which yeah. is also dangerous because the people who most hate Trump and who will never make that argument, it's irresponsible to not look at how he won. Like if we, if you want to defeat him, you have to be honest about how he won. Yeah, there hasn't really. I mean, has there been a real forensic analysis no, of I don't what, think what so. actually? I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting. Here's point. my prediction though about what MSNBC will do if Bernie does win. They'll do what they're already doing sometimes, which Joy, Joanne Reed does this a lot. They'll talk about what the media could say about him, or Chuck Todd does this. Like they're afraid that he will be red baited. They don't use that word, but they're afraid that his you know siding against the Contras will hurt him, which is. They just basically say the media critique that they they pretend to outsource it, but they're actually articulating it and they're pretending that this is a vulnerability, but they're doing the arguing that they're that they're bemoaning or lamenting is going to happen. Like they're like, I hope I I just don't want to see him being accused of being a raging communist, but that'll happen. And they, in the process, have just accused him of being a raging communist. And then they're going to just compare Trump and Bernie and say how similar they are and and how the bros this and the extremists this. And, and well, of course, what anyone who takes politics seriously knows is that what makes Sanders electable is that he's, in some ways, there are parallels, but he's totally diverges. 
Like that's what makes you electable. When you have, a, you, you don't want an excited, fervent base. You don't want that. How are you going to defeat Trump? Well, and that's, you made such a good point, And this has been something I've been thinking about a lot. Part of why the left has been so ineffective at prosecuting the case against Donald Trump is because they never bothered to understand the real reasons why people like Trump and the real way that people felt about Trump. And if you don't understand the way that normal people are thinking about this leader, then you're not going to understand where the cracks are and what you should be hitting and going after. It's the same thing with Bernie, right? And you see this, like, since they are so bought into this narrative that nobody likes him, right? And that, you know, people see him as a secret sexist and whatever. They really thought the Elizabeth Warren attack on him was going to work. Oh my God, and it did, it did nothing but backfire, right? Which, which we saw coming because it was another sort of like hollow identity play that ultimately highlighted yeah. her own questions about her own electability, right? So the fact that they don't have an accurate picture of how most of the public sees him renders them incapable of actually mounting an effective attack against him. Yeah, and let me say this too, which is, Katie, to your excellent point earlier about MSNBC and the socialism, but the, oh, the communist. The funny thing is, the right takes its cues from that. So part of the issue is why I think it will be a very, very bad, very difficult for Trump with Sanders. I think it's a true toss-up, whereas I don't think it is that way with anywhere else is that the RNC and all these other people have been wanting to run the Vera Socialist campaign for years. They said it about Obama. They said it about you know, Clinton, even Bill Clinton, right? One of the most corporatist candidates of all time. That's They, they are foaming at the mouth in order to run that type of campaign. And so that, because it's a fundamentally neoliberal framework and they don't understand the class differences. So to me, the big issue I have is that the right will only take its cues from these idiots on MSNBC and be like, yeah, see, every time we talk about this, it gets a lot of airtime and regular people are just gonna be out there and be like, I just want healthcare, I want my job back. That's it. That's that's literally. I mean, that's is that a crazy way to think about politics? No. Sagar, though, do you, do you think that the word socialist is going to be a real vulnerability for Sanders if he ends up in the general election? I mean, I, I, is is there anything to that argument? I think I think there might be. I I you know Matt, I really don't think so because they said so much of the same about Trump. Oh, look at the you know the what do they say that they they compared his speeches to Mussolini line by line with the number yeah, of syllables. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you you guys remember this? It's like oh, he's a fascist, he's the next Hitler. Also, it's people just completely tune it out, and, th- and that's that's why I think it's actually genius for Sanders just be like, yeah, I'm a democratic socialist because yeah. then you're not even trying to be like, no, I'm not a fascist. You're just like, I am this label. This is what it means to me. That means to me. What it means to me is quite reasonable in the minds of many Americans. That's all you do. That's what I would do. And I think it's I think it's brilliant to just be and I you know I talk about this in terms of Medicare for all. These Republican idiots think that they're like, oh well Sanders wants to raise your taxes. And he's like, yes, the taxes will go up and the costs will go down. People love honesty. All they want is authenticity. That's it. That's what what the actual fight on Medicare for all will be is not whether the tax will go up. It's whether you trust that the cost will go down. That is what the fight will be over. Not over, oh, he says he's going to raise your taxes. Forget about it. That's He admits it. That's the whole thing. And that right. people love that about it. Yeah. It was the same thing with right. Trump. And it's just they don't even have the framework to understand what we're talking about. And that's what really worries me. But no, I don't think the socialist attack will work. I mean, that was the thing with Trump is he yeah. would say these things that no consultant would ever tell you to say. Right. And people read that as like, oh, he's honest. 
it's kind of the same thing yeah. with embracing a label that every consultant in this town yeah. would be like, you can't say that. And by being like, yeah, I'm a democratic right. socialist, to most people that reads, oh, he's straightforward with this. He's honest, right? right? So right. I also think it sort of baits Republicans into a conversation about economics, yeah. which is a very, you know, which is where Sanders ultimately and where Democrats should ultimately want to fight these battles. Last thing for me, Sagar, what, what do you think the future of the Republican Party is? Let's just say if Trump loses, because I think that's an interesting question, right? Does it do do the people who were the traditional re- Republican intelligentsia, the people who ran the party, are they going to reassert control or is it going to continue going in that economic populist direction that maybe like Tucker Carlson represents? Like what what's going to happen going forward? Well, so it's going to be one of the great civil wars of all time, because part of the thing that Trump to my dismay, really has done, has welcomed the establishment forces within. So the people in, a, in this town who wear MAGA hats and shout about drain the swamp are often the swampiest people themselves. <laughs> and then, so what the real fight is going to be is about what Make America Great Again meant in 2016. You're going to see Paul Ryan's wing of the GOP, who is going to run if Trump loses, and they're going to say, what Trump ran on was tax cuts. That's what Make America Great Again was all about. And then you're going to have a much more populist direction and be like, no, 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 no. What we're talking about is a rejection of free market orthodoxy, of trade orthodoxy, and an embrace of a class view of politics. Now, I, I won't sit here and predict. I, I think the base is always going to be on Trump and a Tucker Carlson side. But like I did with Bernie, I don't underestimate the Chamber of Commerce. They're not stupid. They know exactly how to co-op that message and be like, we're going to make America great again with tax cuts and with deregulated derivative markets. That's what it all meant from the very beginning. And I don't underestimate for a second that they won't be able to win. So it will be one of the great fights of all time. One of the things that I am trying to do on the show is lay the intellectual groundwork for the war, because the war is coming even if Trump wins re-election, and because he's just decided to kind of let these more establishment forces in, is anybody can really claim the mantle to Trumpism, because it means whatever you really want it to mean. And I fault the president and his administration more than anything for not making it clear what it actually means. That's why I love that Bernie will just be like, yeah, I'm a democratic socialist. If you're not with me, get out. I think it's perfect. Uh, Crystal Sager, thank you so much. Congratulations on uh, the amazing success of, uh, yeah. of your book. Uh, people should go out and buy it. Populist Guide to 2020. Uh, We're going to write a useful idiot's guide to a yeah. populist guide. Are we going to do that? Okay. Yeah. We're going to start right after the yeah. show. We love you guys. We appreciate thank you. Guys. you. Thank, thank you, guys you so both. Thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, Sager, quickly. Is that, a, is that a half Nelson? What kind of tie is that? What kind of nod of is that? Of course it is. Half it's Windsor, man. Half Windsor. Okay, What's great. That? Yeah, exactly. Half that. Nelson. That's a wrestling move. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for taking the time. So I learned something today. Good. What? Um, that their book is great. Actually, we read it a while ago. I was going to say. So, but it, it, it's, it, it's been cool to watch their success. It yeah. shot up through the Amazon rankings. That yeah. was kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, they're doing great. And, you know, I, their show is such a, it's such a thumb in the eye of every television producer who thinks that kind of format can't work. It's hilarious to watch how well it's doing. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, that's really cool. It's always great to check in with them. They're great. So while we're here, we might as well do our 
wrap-ups of the debate before yeah. they happen because right. it's, we're going to say the same things no matter what anyway. Yeah, well, so. so by the time this is released, the debates will have happened, um, but we won't have seen, and we will have seen them. We but will we're, have seen it, yeah. We're recording pre-debate. We're basically owning that um, we haven't seen the debates, but we're going to respond to them anyway. Right. Because that's how much, that's how committed we are to providing you with a good show. Right. Right. So um, here's what I thought. I thought Bernie was great. Wow, what a surprise. I thought Bernie was <laughs> I'm just great. blown away. He that did you a think great that. job. He was authentic. He had great moments. I loved what he said about working people and sticking to the issues. Um, I loved his zingers against Mike Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. I thought Mike Bloomberg came off like a whiny Stentorian. Stentorian. Snobbish. Snobbish. Aristocratic. Aristocratic fake New York accent. Self-satisfied. Self-satisfied. Preening. Preening. Bostonian. <laughs> Goblin. Goblin of a man, yeah. <laughs> the most annoying is probably, was probably... Chuck Todd. Oh, my God. Chuck Todd was or the as worst. As a friend of mine calls him, Chuck Todd. He's the worst. Also, what's up with his facial hair? It's really hideous. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it is the, what it the is. The facial hair combined with, it's like, is he wearing a toupee? Uh, it I looks like a thing was dropped on his head. I think he's going for this like neo Klingon thing. I mean, it kind of works for me. I don't know if I really have a take, except that it was really gross, and I didn't really want to watch it all the way to the end. And I didn't feel any more rewarded having watched it than I would have had I not watched right. it. And also, I was disgusted by the way they uh, decided that Klobuchar was the clear winner of the debate. Oh yeah, me too. Which is going to happen. Uh, which the only happened. question is, w- which happened? Right, exactly. Within three minutes of the end of the debate. Right. Yeah. What do you think of um, their outfits? The uh, on stage, I don't know. I never really pay attention yeah, to the Brandon, outfits. Yeah. What, what kind of? T- what did you think of Bloomberg's tie? I thought it was corporate. Do you think he was standing on a on a, on a platform? Yeah, a platform of hate. <laughs> so that's what we think of the debate. Where if you if you need for us to have watched it, then you might be sorely disappointed. But that that's I our take. I think you won't anyway. be. I think you'll have found this very good. Probably right. one of the best post debate. Pre-debate, post-debate analysis. Whatever, yeah, we're, we're 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 wrecking the space-time continuum. Exactly, yeah. uh, all right, so th- that was uh, useful, idiots. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you uh, next week. Yeah. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.